Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Broadcasting live from my secret studio somewhere deep in captivity, this is Ken Levine with this week's edition of Hollywood and Levine. Thanks so much for joining me. I hope you are safe and well and remain in that state as uh, we continue this uh, quarantine quagmire. So this week, what am I going to talk about? Well, recently on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, I posted a photo of one of our first credits by R, I mean my partner David Isaacs and I, and it was from Joe and Sons, and if you follow me on Twitter and Instagram, you can see it at Ken Levine on Twitter, Hollywood and Levine on Instagram. Anyway, a reader wrote in that I rarely talk about that early period in our career. And so I thought, okay, that might be a great topic for this week. And so wander back with us now to 1975. See, we were under the impression at the time, because we had just sold an episode of The Jeffersons, and I've talked about that a lot, but we were under the impression that once you sell your first show, then you cross the River Jordan. You got it made. You are just set. No. Not hardly. Uh, It is a rocky road and kind of a long, bumpy journey. And I'm sure that you talk to any successful TV comedy writer from that era, he's going to tell you some of the same stories that I'm telling you. Okay, so like I said, 1975, it was the summer. And of course, the television landscape was so different back then. You only had three networks. Most shows had very small staffs. I mean, if you watch a sitcom now, they're mentioning producers and co-producers and staff writers and consulting producers and everything halfway through the show. Back then, it was like maybe two or three people on staff. So freelance writers were in great demand because most of the script assignments were filled by freelance writers. Now, that kind of dried up as more and more people went on staff. And at one point, I remember the Writers Guild tried to protect freelance writers by saying in the contract that through the course of a regular full season, you had to have like two or three episodes reserved for freelance writers. But I don't even know if that's true anymore, especially with orders of six shows and 13 shows. And even then, they were getting around it by giving away those freelance assignments to writer's assistants. So you could not make a living in the aughts 
as a freelance writer, but you could back in the 70s and really pretty much in the early 80s. Okay, so we sold our Jeffersons, and we had this terrible fly-by-night agent that basically did nothing, and we thought, okay, now's our opportunity to get a real agent. So the Writers Guild, at the time, I imagine they still do this, but they print out a list of all of the reputable agencies. And they also say which ones will look at unsolicited new material. So we figure, okay, now we're in the Writers Guild. Now we actually have a credit on a major television show. Now agents are probably going to be more interested. And so we called everybody. And we did get some offers, the William Morris Agency, number one, and number two, Robinson Weintraub, which was a pretty big agency at the time, and they handled a lot of comedy writers. The problem was that our fear was that if we are just kind of the low men on the totem pole, that they're going to be spending their time, the agents, that is, they're going to be spending their time getting work for their high-salaried clients. I mean, it only made sense. So there was a, another smaller agency, the William Schuler Agency, and there were two young women, both in their mid-20s, Deborah Greenfield and Susie Gross, and we met with them. And what we liked about them was that they were so eager and so hungry. They didn't have a lot of clients, but they knew all of the story editors on all of the shows. And we figured they would work much harder on our behalf. So we didn't go with Robinson Weintraub or the William Morris Agency. We went with Deborah and Susie, with the William Schuler Agency. At the time, the big clients for William Schuler were Ronnie Howard as an actor, and this was just at the period where he was quitting acting to become a director, and Don DeFore. <laughs> you probably go, who? Don DeFore was like a second banana in TV sitcoms in the 50s. All right, so... Now we have agents that are actually trying to get us work. At the time, we both had day jobs. I was working at the KISS Broadcasting Workshop, teaching broadcasters, teaching young people how to tell time and give the weather over the radio. And David was working at ABC in Hollywood in the long since disbanded film shipping department. Well, the first perk that we got out of Deborah and Susie was Deborah said, you know, you guys can collect unemployment. We said, what are you talking about? We're working. She said, well, when you did that assignment for the Jeffersons and the assignment was over, effectively, they were terminating you. And we went, oh, really? I mean... The unemployment office is going to go for that? She said, sign up at the Hollywood unemployment office. Yes. 
The entire Hollywood employment office is writers and actors and musicians and directors and people in the industry out of work. So that's what we did. We quit our day jobs. And Deborah was right because we would be standing in line every two weeks. Back then, you had to actually go to the unemployment office and get your check and tell them how you were looking for work. But we'd be standing in line and there would be Hans Conried and there would be all kinds of character actors. You go, oh, my God, uh, that was the bad guy in Shane. I remember him. (laughs) It was really bizarre, but we were able to collect unemployment. And what a treat it was that we were able to get together every single day in either my apartment or David's apartment and come up with story ideas to pitch to various shows, because that's how you got freelance assignments. They invited you in, you pitched various story ideas, and if they sparked to one, they hired you, and then you got the writing assignment. So we got some meetings on pilots. The first one I talked about a little bit way back in the episode where I was interviewing Mark Evanier. This was, again, back in 1975, and a friend of David's was a secretary to the gentleman who was the head of live development scripts for Hanna-Barbera, which, of course, is primarily known for cartoons, Huckleberry Hound, Yogi Bear, Scooby-Doo, yada, yada. So we said to her, hey, do you think you could get us a meeting with your boss, Herb Solo? She calls up and she goes, okay, you're set. Come on in Wednesday at 5. So we wander in. This was our first meeting. We wander in Wednesday at 5, sit down, and he goes, oh, so you are the fucking guys who got in here using Hitler tactics. We were like, what? What are you talking about? He goes, yeah, okay, so you muscled your way in. Uh, Let's hear your fucking ideas. Now, what we should have done, of course, is just gotten up and said, look, obviously there's been a mistake. We don't want to take up any more of your time. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Say hi to Huckleberry Hound for me. Fuck you. No, Like idiots, we sat there and pitched our ideas. And, of course, every idea was just shot down. No, that's stupid. That's a fucking terrible idea. So that was our our first meeting. We also met with Gerald Abrams. And nothing came of that. But uh, we took a couple of meetings with Gerald Abrams. Oh, his son, somebody you might have heard of, J.J. Abrams. Also at Warner Brothers, there was an executive there named Stu Samuels who had us in and we were developing a pilot for him that didn't go. And I don't remember exactly what it was. I do remember the title was Terminal Life, which I thought, oh, God, that's kind of a terrible title. But anyway, we worked on that. and We were getting, you know, a little money to to develop these things. The best part of the Stu Samuels experience was, as I mentioned, he was at Warner Brothers. So one day we had a meeting with him, like at 3 o'clock, and we decided, let's get to the lot like at 2, and let's just wander around the Warner Brothers lot. No one's going to bother us. We'll have a drive on. Let's just do it. 
And we did. We wandered around, and we came to a soundstage. And standing on the platform, taking a break, smoking a cigarette, was John Wayne. This was his final movie, The Shootist. And there he was, about eight or nine steps above us on a platform in his full costume with the hat and everything else, smoking a cigarette. And you think John Wayne is larger than life anyway. Well, imagine looking up at him. And we just gawked. And he looked down at us and he went, uh, how's it going, boys? They're going fine, Duke. So that was like our one moment of fame when we got a chance to chat up John Wayne. We pitched a show called Maud. That was a Norman Lear show starring B. Arthur, a lovely man who was the story editor, Charlie Howe, who has since become a dear friend. We would go in and we would pitch 10 story ideas, and he would like two or three, and then he would have to take them to the producers, and the producers would have to sign off. So he would take our three ideas, the producers would go, no, don't like it. Charlie would call and say, sorry guys, you struck out, but you're welcome to come back with 10 more. So he came back with 10 more and the same thing happened. Long story short, we ended up pitching over 50 mod ideas and never got an assignment. The other Norman Lear show that we were fortunate enough to get into pitch was All in the Family. They didn't buy any of our pitches either. This is a period of rejection, by and large, folks. But the great thing about the All in the Family meeting was that the person who took it with us was an older veteran comedy writer named Milt Josephsberg, and he was a longtime writer on the Jack Benny show. Supposedly, and I don't know if it's true or an urban legend, but supposedly the great Jack Benny line where he's being held up and the robber says, your money or your life, a long pause, and he says, I'm thinking it over. Okay, supposedly it was Milt Josephsburg who came up with that line. And by the way, I told it horribly. So we didn't uh, get anything there. We really wanted to be at MTM. That was our ultimate goal. When we were writing spec scripts for the Mary Tyler Moore show, we would drive by the lot and you would see the billboard for the Mary Tyler Moore show. And we would drive by and go, we're coming, Mary, we're coming. We desperately wanted to get into MTM. And we had kind of an intro because one of the staff writers, Bob Ellison, and he too was a former guest on this podcast um, a number of weeks ago or months ago, you know, as day by day goes on here during the quarantine, you don't know. This might be summer. I don't know. But he liked our stuff and he was going to pitch it to the producer, Ed Weinberger. Unfortunately, they had hired another team to do a freelance episode, and it sucked. They had to completely rewrite it from page one. And as a result of that, Ed Weinberger said, no more freelance assignments this year. 
we're done. So we were shut out of the Mary Tyler Moore show. And we kept trying to get into Phyllis. Michael Leeson was the story editor and Deborah and Susie would like call him every other week. And he kept saying, if we get picked up, if we get picked up, he kept stringing them along. We never got in to Phyllis. Another show that we could not crack was Welcome Back, Cotter. They just did not dig our material. And I look at Welcome Back, Cotter, and I go, "Mm, yeah, okay. And this is a lesson for everybody who gets rejected. Okay, Welcome Back, Cotter didn't think we were any good, but MASH did. So there you go. We pitched Laverne and Shirley one time. In the waiting room, there was us and one other young woman writer. And there was one assignment open. She was wearing a see-through blouse. Guess who got the assignment? Although in fairness, I have to say that she and the producer wound up getting married. But still, we did not get an assignment there. We pitched a producer writer named Norman Steinberg, and he had a show on ABC called When Things Were Rotten, and this was under Mel Brooks. And at the time, of course, Blazing Saddles was huge, and Norman Steinberg was one of the writers of Blazing Saddles, also Young Frankenstein, so Mel Brooks could do no wrong. And he got this show, which was a spoof of Robin Hood, He got this show on ABC, and Norman really liked our material and really liked us and really liked our stories, but they were full for the first 13. If the show was going to get a back nine, we would get an assignment. The show got canceled after 13. Later that year, he did a pilot, it was a multi-camera pilot, called Roosevelt and Truman. Jimmy Burroughs directed it, starred Artie Evans and Philip Michael Thomas, who later went on to Miami Vice. And we wrote a backup script for that show. We got paid for it. The pilot never went. And, of course, the backup script is on the trash heap somewhere. ABC picked up a show called Snip. And it was from the Comac Company. Ironically, the same company that made Welcome Back, Cotter. But this starred David Brenner, the stand-up comedian, as a hairdresser. And it was sort of a comedic version of the movie Shampoo that starred Warren Beatty. Well, we were told to go to the producer's house to see the pilot. And then he would give us any kind of instructions in terms of what they were looking for. And then we would come back with story ideas. So we had to meet at Stan Cutler's house at like 8.30 in the morning. And his house was way up in Bel Air on Blue Jay Way. Remember Blue Jay Way from the Beatles song? So we go up there and it's this mid-century modern house And we walk in and there's a butler in like a full uniform and white gloves. It's 8.30 in the morning. And he asks if we want a drink. (laughs) No. No, we usually don't start drinking until 9. 
So we go and we sit down, and then two more writers come in. One is named Martin Ragway, who was a longtime veteran writer, wrote lots of things in the 50s and 60s. And the other was uh, another sort of young guy who we recognized as Roby. We didn't know any of his credits. We don't even know if he had credits, but he had some terrible public access show on back in the day when cable channels had to have a public access channel and he had one and we would laugh and make ass fun of it. So these were the three highly sought writing entities, an old veteran, a, (laughs) a star on cable and two guys who have one credit. We saw the pilot. Stan Cutler came out dressed in like a velour suit, kind of like Captain Kirk. And he told us exactly what they were looking for and to come back with story ideas. They were picked up. They were on the fall schedule. They had an order of 13 shows. The network was running promos for SNP. Somehow, between the time we left Blue Jay Way... And four or five days later, when we had assembled seven or eight ideas for SNP, the network canceled it, just canceled it, yanked it off the schedule, no order whatsoever, done. I don't know what happened there. But it's very similar to another NBC show that had been on the air called Grady. Remember Grady? It was a spinoff, short-lived spinoff of Sanford and Son. So David and I get to go in and pitch Grady stories. Grady was located on the NBC lot in Burbank. So we show up one afternoon. Our meeting was like at 2.30. There's a drive-on for us. Everything is just fine. We go up to the office Doors locked and go, well, okay, maybe they had a late lunch or something. We'll just hang out here and wait. Now it's 3 o'clock. Now it's 3.15. I figured there's something wrong. I mean, the show is in production. Why, why are they locked? We go down to a pay phone and we call her agent and tell her what's going on. And she says, all right, stay on the line. Let me try to find out what's happening. And she comes back about three minutes later. Oh, the show is canceled this morning at 11. They all just went home. Gee, would have been nice to tell us. And now we come to Joe and Sons. We got a chance to pitch Joe and Sons. This was a show that was on the CBS fall schedule. It starred Richard Castellano, which is a big fat guy from The Godfather, Jerry Stiller, Barry Miller, who at the time was a teenager. He was one of the stars of Saturday Night Fever. Jimmy Bayo, who was Scott's younger brother. Sorrel Brook, who was a really fine actor. And the producers were a lovely couple of guys, writing team of Bernie Cookoff and Jeff Harris. Bernie Cookoff, God love him, is still alive. Well, we met with them in September on a Wednesday. They said, guys, go in the other room and look at the pilot. 
and come back Friday morning with story ideas. So he looked at the pilot. It's this blue-collar father trying to raise two kids. We came up with some story ideas, and they liked one. And they said, okay, we'll give you an assignment. It's like, yeah, finally, we nailed one. We spent the afternoon working out the story with them. And then they said, okay, we need it Friday morning. We said, no, that should be no problem. Shouldn't take us more than a week to come up with the outline. And they went, wait, no, not the outline, the script. We need the script Friday morning. Oh, sure, we could do that, no problem. We were not about to (laughs) give up an assignment. So at the time, we would take generally about two weeks to write a script. Now we take three days, but back then it took about two weeks. So we worked from 8 in the morning until 10 o'clock at night for six days until we came up with the final script. And we came in that Friday morning and we handed it to them. And they said, okay, great, guys. Go next door to Farmer's Market and have lunch and come back in an hour and a half and we'll give you notes. Okay, (laughs) we did. They gave us notes. They really weren't that bad. And they said, bring in the draft on Monday. So we busted our ass, wrote the draft over the weekend, turned it in. And later that week, it went into production. Now, I'm wondering... To this day, they got picked up in May. They had the entire summer. This was now September. This was like a week before the show was actually going to premiere. We were like the third episode, which is one of the reasons why it actually aired. But you go, well, what did you do with all that lead time? (laughs) Yeah, the whole summer. You figure by September, we're doing show eight or nine. Anyway, we did a good job. They were really happy. They gave us a second episode to do, and you're way ahead of me. They canceled the show. We got paid for it, but it never got produced. One incident that I want to talk about with Joe and Sons, though, Jerry Stiller, and Jerry Stiller has done some wonderful things. Personally, I am not a fan because of this one incident. We went down to a rehearsal, and the premise of our episode was that the Jerry Stiller character was involved in an auto accident and tried to fake an injury so that he could get a big insurance payoff, kind of like the movie The Fortune Cookie, but not nearly as good. So there was a scene where he's lying on the couch and he's wearing a neck brace and Joe walks by idly tossing a toy rubber football and he just flips it in the air towards Jerry and Jerry is supposed to, by reflex, just move up and automatically catch the football and that gives him away. And Jerry was going, hey, I'm not fucking Lucy. What are you having me doing these fucking stunts for? 
It was like a half an hour talking him into doing this. And I thought to myself, yeah, okay, you are not Lucy. Finally, we got a call from Barney Miller. Wow. Barney Miller was a top-tier show. And it was created by a tremendous writer named Danny Arnold. Danny had done like the first season of Bewitched when it was good. He had a great series called My World and Welcome to It. He was a tremendous writer. And he created Barney Miller and wrote like the first five or six episodes. We were just thrilled. So we go down and we meet him. And their studios were at 1313 Vine Street in Hollywood. We go into his office, giant office. He was, boys, boys, come in here. How are you? Love you guys. I think he was like in his 50s then, maybe early 60s, smoking a giant cigar. Where have you guys been? You guys are fantastic. Love you. Come up with story ideas and... We'll be working together. Like, yeah, fantastic. So we went home all jacked up, came up with a bunch of Barney Miller stories, came back in like four days later, and it was a different Danny Arnold. We walk in the office and it's like, yeah, okay, wh- what do you got? What do you got? Talk to me. We pitched our first story and he goes, no, fuck. Come on. We'd never do that. What the hell? Have you ever seen our show? What else? We pitched something else. No, God damn it. That's terrible. Shit. No, what else? We pitched like six or seven stories and he shot them all down. What happened here? We're walking out and just before we get to the door, he said, yeah, the one with uh, you not having a gambling problem. I, I don't think there's anything there, but if you want to develop an outline, you're welcome to. So we walked out and we said, all right, we're going to do that. We are not going to give this guy the satisfaction that he broke us. When in fact, he almost did. So we came up with a story and we turned it in. And they paid us for the outline and cut us off. He didn't like it. Okay, so much for Barney Miller. Three weeks later, we get a call from Danny Arnold's secretary. Hey, guys, Danny would like to see you in his office tomorrow morning at 8. I don't know what it is with these 8 o'clock meetings, but okay. (laughs) Maybe he'll beat up on us again. Before breakfast, sure, we'll be there. We show up, and it's the, boys, come on in, Danny Arnold. Have a donut. Have two donuts. You want coffee? What do you need? Love you guys. Uh, Okay. Okay, so I was going over your story, and you know what? I think it's actually really good. Uh, I just have, like, a couple of tweaks, and then we can go to work on this thing. We said, great. All right, and I brought a tape recorder because at that time when I would go into story meetings, I would record them to make sure that we got everything. 
So he said, now in this scene, uh, have Barney do this. In this scene, uh, won't you hoe it uh, could do this instead? And again, we're taking this all down. And he says, okay, great. Come out of the outline, and then we'll send you the script. So we do another outline, and we send it off. A day later, we get cut off. <laughs> it did not jump off the page to him. I think they actually did some of our stories, but mm, I, I don't know. The punchline to that whole story is now you flash forward a few years and David and I are the head writers of MASH. We get a call one day from Danny Arnold. Boys, boys, love you guys. Listen, uh, the showrunner, Reinhold Ouija, is leaving and you guys would be perfect to be my number two guys and basically run Barney Miller. <laughs> no, thank you. And so that led up to MASH because our two agents moved over to another agency, major talent agency, and one of their clients was Gene Reynolds, who was the showrunner of MASH. This was season five. Larry Gelbart had just departed and they were looking for young writers. Deborah and Susie pitched us over lunch one day. Gene read our draft of the Jeffersons, really liked it, and invited us to come in to pitch. And when he bought one of our ideas and we did an episode of MASH, that launched our career. So there you have it, our early days in television. That'll do it for this week of Hollywood and Levine. Our thanks, as always, to Adam and Susie Meister, Butler, John Wolford, Howard Hoffman, Bruce and Jason Miller. I will write you back if you email me at hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. That's hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. Like I said, you can follow me on Twitter at Ken Levine. I am also on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine. You can see pictures of my granddaughter from time to time. And I invite you to subscribe and leave a five-star review. Again, more than anything else, I hope you're safe. Be smart. And I will talk to you again next week. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Hollywood and the Fine. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. <laughs> Auto Trader.